Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. So what happened to the Christian Democratic Party? I would argue that both Europe and North America, many people are less overtly religious. You and I are both identify as Catholic, but I think that in some ways, perhaps we could argue that overtly religious people are becoming a minority in Europe and Spain, potentially, and potentially we're on our way to that, if not already there in the United States. I think it impacts the United States and our politics. Do you think, I'm assuming it impacts politics in Spain? Well, to start with, we didn't belong to the Christian democracy because of our religious affiliation. That was a, a center-right party, a center-right party very much along the lines of the German Christian democracy, which was very liberal as far as the politics were concerned, but at the same time, rather social as far as the economy was concerned. It was a free social economy, if you want. And... Uh, with some sort of degree of difference with the liberals who were more sort of classic as far as the, the economic approach. After the UCD disappearance, we put together a Christian Democratic Party, which did do well. And Fraga did something which was to disappear from the national sphere and at the same time to go to Jose Maria Arnar. Jose Maria Arnar was the one to be able to put together all the different forces after the beginning of the transitional period, and be able to win the elections and put together governments in 1966. So it was Christian democracy, liberals put together the end of Fraga, the beginning of Fatna, the beginning of the People's Party, and uh, the beginning of the possibility of putting an end to 40 years of socialist government, which would happen between 1982 and 1996, which is a rather long so the Christian Democrats are still there. I feel myself still a Christian Democrat, but uh, there is a new identity, if you want. Uh, I mean, people do not identify themselves as Christian liberals or Christian Democrats or whatever. They identify themselves as members of the People's Party or as members of the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party has been going through the same sort of arrangement between the left and the right within the party and so on and so forth. So Christian democracy remains an idea, which is a rather powerful idea, but does not remain as a political party. So that's um, our ideas are there. And uh, if you look at the basis uh, of the platforms for the People's Party, you will find out a lot of references, which are in the origin are very much Christian democratic ideas. We do belong to the European People's Party, which is basically Christian democratic, together with the Germans and with Italians, with the center right all over Europe. So that remains. But uh, the name, with the exception of the Germans, because the Germans, the Christian democracy in Germany is still very much there, even with the letters, but uh, it's not any longer in Europe. Practically in Italy, they have disappeared. And in all the other countries are taking the form of people's popular parties, no, Christian democratic parties. One of the things that's been talked about, Ambassador, is the issue of burden sharing with institutions like NATO. There have been some recent agreements in the last 10 years to increase spending among all NATO members to 2% of GNP. 
This is a very challenging goal for a number of countries. You served in parliament as well. You were a parliamentarian. You were an elected official. You were also ambassador to NATO. Could you talk about what it's like to politically sell the idea of spending more on defense in a European country? How hard is that? And what are the incentives for countries to spend more on defense? This is a challenge. There's an argument that the United States is disengaging multilaterally. I would argue that perhaps what the United States is trying to do is renegotiate the terms of its burden sharing and maybe perhaps less effectively than it might be able to make that argument. So could you talk a little bit about this issue of NATO and burden sharing and how one sells that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, this is one of the few things that I would take as a valid point coming from the Trump administration. He didn't understand what he was talking about because he didn't refer to the amount of money we should dedicate each of us to defend spending in our budget. He was referring to the burden sharing. I mean, the burden sharing, as far as NATO is concerned, is there. I mean, we contribute to the maintenance of NATO according to our own quarters. Uh, and there is no doubt about that. And there is no one who is missing that. Another thing is the percentage of our budget that we dedicate to defense spending. And that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are, Spain is extremely low. It's 0.9%, which is uh, together with Luxembourg and perhaps some other countries we are. Uh, what was the explanation for that? I mean, the first explanation is that uh, European countries feel secure. I mean, they don't realize that there is any danger to their own security as far as military affairs are concerned. And that has become rather difficult for politicians in Europe to uh, tell the people that they should be uh, paying more for defense affairs when they don't see the need for that. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is something we should try and change because security matters and security problems do exist and we have to try and keep those recommendations. Mind you, there is a big difference. When I was ambassador to NATO, the level was not 2%, it was 3%. Now it's 2%, so it's been, uh, it's been reduced. But uh, we should try, all of us together, and explain to our own citizens, after all, we should be able to play for our own defense. Certainly, there's another additional factor, which is the United States. I mean, quite a number of people think, after all, we are there just because the United States uh, is there and is going to do whatever it takes just to protect us, which is wrong. Well, I would say it's wrong, but uh, it's wrong as far as uh, the system is concerned. The system does not cannot be based on the existence of one just superpower who is taking care of all the security for all the members. What shall we do? Well, it's rather difficult. Mind you, now we have the pandemic on top of everything, and uh, we are going to go through extremely difficult times as far as the economy is concerned. If you look at all the jobs we are losing, I mean, all the situation of the economy, well, not only in Europe, all over the world, how to explain to people who are literally dying of hunger to, to pay more for defense, it's going to be rather difficult, but that's something we have to face, something we have to face, and as far as uh, political forces are concerned, something they have to take into account and convince people to do that. But I, I cannot go any further than that right now. If I say to you Russia and how you see Russia, and how do Europeans see Russia as a challenge? Because I think there's going to be a lot of energy and sort of negative animus towards Russia over the next four years here in Washington. Could you talk about that, how Europeans see Russia? Tell you truth, Dan, I'm more concerned about China than about Russia. But, uh, I mean, we can't debate about which is worse. I think the real power right now is not Russia, it's China. And we have to take a number of 
steps concerning that presence. Uh, China is becoming more and more active. In, in the last 20, 30 years, we knew that China was uh, trying to improve their own economy. And after all, we considered that was the right step. I mean, try to feed the people. The people was a, a good decision. Right now, China is more and more becoming a political factor in not only the region, not only the China Sea, but all over the world, and uh, politically speaking, socially speaking, economically speaking. Russia is a mess, a mess which is trying to create a number of messes all around the world. And certainly we have to be extremely careful as far as cybersecurity is concerned. This is not a joke. The more I learn, the more I know about cybersecurity, the more we know about cybersecurity, we know very well that the Russians are trying to do everything possible to disrupt our own stability through cyber attacks. Otherwise, uh, I mean, it's up to the Russians to decide what to do with themselves. We thought after the disappearance of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was going to become a democratic Russia. Well, that did not happen. And now we see that they are living under a new autocracy, which is led by someone who doesn't deserve any real respect called Putin. But I don't think that uh, Russia is a real power. I think it's a real trouble. I wouldn't say the real trouble is China. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I could influence the politics of NATO, the European Union, so I would try and look with care about what to do with China. Mind you, the European Union has just signed a bilateral trade treaty with China. Let's see how far it goes. But uh, I think that the approach could be the right one. I get the sense that the views in Europe have been evolving, have been sort of, I think the United States has taken a decidedly more negative view towards China in the last five years. I get the sense that maybe Europe is sort of moving in that direction as well, though I worry that there are divisions in Europe. And in particular, I'm concerned about Germany and Germany's relationship with China and it and Germany being overly friendly with the Chinese as well as being overly friendly with the Russians. Could you just comment on sort of European views about China and also if you could talk about their evolving views of China within Europe? Oh, there is one thing. Well, I mean, certainly we, I think that Europe should try and realign their own trade and political relations with China. There is no doubt about that. And I think the first thing, the Europeans should try and do, very much like the last few years under Trump been trying to do, is to realign their own preferences as far as the trade relations are concerned. Two things we have to try and do with China. One is the continuous dumping they've been doing on our own products and offerings. And the other thing is the, the intellectual property. I mean, they've been the born vandals as far as intellectual property. They've been stealing it from you, from the Americans, from the Europeans all over the world, and uh, against all the international rules concerning international property. And I think from that viewpoint, we should try and go back to the multilateral system of the organization of uh, international trade. Yes, to make sure that all those rules are duly respected by all of us, the Americans, the Europeans, and certainly the Chinese, you know. From that viewpoint, I do believe firmly in the multilateral obligations. And I think it's been a serious mistake for the Trump administration to try and abandon all those uh, multilateral things, you know. But uh, we should try and follow that line. I think it's rather difficult because, after all, the Chinese have their own interests. They, they have become extremely powerful as far as trade is concerned. And we should try and negotiate uh, what, uh, what comes out of it. But we should try to do that and put a number of uh, 
barriers to what they've been trying to do quite successfully in the last few years. Tell me about COVID. You referenced it earlier. How do you see COVID? I mean, I would argue COVID's been a disruptor, an accelerator, and a clarifier. It's disrupted all sorts of economic activity. It's accelerated our movement towards a digital future. The fact we're doing this on Zoom is an example of that, but everyone is using Zoom. And I think it's an important part of the future of having modern life requires digital connectivity. And then third, I think it's clarified that we need to kind of reset our relationship with China on a more realistic basis and perhaps a less idealistic basis, let me put it that way. Because I'd be curious your views about COVID and what it means for our future. Certainly there are a number of changes. Uh, You mentioned the fact that we are right now talking through the Zoom. And I think that's a rather positive. We've discovered, after all, we can interfere. We can talk to each other and we can share a number of talks in, in this system. And that applies to a number of uh, different activities. And after all, one of the things we are learning is that through the virtual arena, we can reach far more people than before when everything was in person. Uh, right now, one of the members of the direction of a trade union of diplomats in, in Spain and I discovered we can talk practically to all, all of our members, you know, just uh, in a moment, uh, while before it was extremely difficult, but that applies to I'm teaching at the same time in several universities, and, and that's exactly the same thing. But uh, what about people losing jobs? What about people losing the ability to survive? What about people dying of hunger? What about people being unable to send their own children to school? What about people dying, what about people dying? Dying in, in solitude, dying in isolation without any, quite a number of friends of mine have died. I'm sure that, that happened to you as well. And I don't have the answer to that. that I, I, I know that people are trying to, uh, there's sort of hope in the vaccines uh, that uh, they will change the whole thing, but I'm concerned, I'm afraid as well. Mind you, I'm living in Spain right now, my family, my wife and my daughter are in Washington, D.C., and uh, I cannot go back. I shouldn't go back for the time being. I cannot travel. Uh, people advise me, my, my medical doctors advise me, not take a plane, not to fly, not to, not to move around. And uh, so this is the life. It's quite limiting in that sense, too. But as someone like you who's lived on a plane for years, in some ways it's not ideal but it's in some ways with my kids at a certain age, it's been a blessing in disguise in the sense that I've been able to be a present parent for the last 12 months has had a lot of advantages. So, so it's not been all bad, but yeah, the ability to travel has been quite limited. Let me ask you one last question, Ambassador. Could you talk about what are your thoughts about opportunities for the U.S. and Europe where we can work together? You were former Spanish ambassador to the United States. You know our country quite well and You've thought about this. I'd welcome your thoughts about this. You know very well that Europeans, all of us Europeans, were extremely, uh, I wouldn't say angry or rather unsatisfied with the Trump administration. I mean, Trump from the very beginning, rather isolationist uh, foreign policy and the traditional links that uh, the United States of America used to keep with the allies and friends were, if not broken, rather put under rather dubious lights. You remember that uh, the first interaction that Trump had with the members of NATO were rather abrupt, to say the least. You know very well that uh, Trump, from the very beginning, one of the first uh, 
helpers of Brexit, uh, not so much because he wanted to help Johnson, but because he wanted to destroy the European Union. He didn't think anything good about the European Union. And there are a number of uh, reasons, for instance, one of the things he did was to interrupt the negotiations that uh, both the United States and the European Union were having for the free trade agreement between the two sides, and uh, which had been negotiated for quite a number of years, and one was the main hopes of uh, well, establishing a solid ground for relations between the two sides. And, uh, so in general, I say that uh, the feeling of the Europeans uh, and certainly the Europeans who remain members of the European Union is that under Biden, under the new administration, we will be able to recover a level of normal relations, of normalcy between the two sides and of a rather helpful uh, relationship between the two sides. That's the general feeling. That's my feeling. Mind you, I thought that, uh, that Trump was a catastrophe for the country and was a catastrophe for the world. But uh, I'm convinced that uh, the reason why Biden won the election was not so much because uh, people were voting for him, but rather quite a number of people were voting against Trump. And I, I all things considered, I think that's a good decision, certainly as far as uh, as the United States is concerned, certainly as far as the American citizens are concerned, certainly as far as the international relations are concerned, the United States has been playing a rather basic role as far as stability in the world is concerned, as far as stability and hope is concerned. And that feeling has been somehow disrupted by Trump. And I think the hope now is that Biden will be able to go back to that stability, to that way of behavior which was to be expected from the Americans in the last 80 years after the Second World War. And that's rather difficult, it's going to be rather difficult for him to do, because the first thing he has to do, and he is telling us, all of us, that after all, the first thing he has to do is to try and reunify the Americans around the same purposes, whatever their own feelings and inclinations. And I know very well that there are a number of things he had to do, even concerning the Democratic Party, but the hope is there. The hope is there. I know Biden very well. I, he was, uh, when I was ambassador there, he was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate. I had a number of conversations with him. He's a man of reason. He's a man of understanding. And I do hope that he does exactly what people are expecting from him to do. And uh, I'm sure he will. But otherwise, I think that's uh, all things considered this a way of hoping for the best and forgetting about uh, the rather dubious past. Well, Ambassador, I think we should probably end it here. I'm so grateful that you would take time to be with me today. I'm grateful. It's great to see you. And I hope to see you in person soon. I hope to see you. I hope, <laughs> I hope the pandemia, I hope the COVID lets me go back to the United States, which after all, my residence is there in Washington, D.C. And I do hope yourself and your family are doing well. I send you my very best to you and your family, Ambassador. Thanks for your time. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 